0: I'd like us to turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12. 1 Corinthians, chapter 12. As we look at the first phrase of verse 1 of chapter 12, we find the stated topic that the Apostle Paul desires to address. And that topic is the topic of spiritual gifts. Let me just give you this brief definition as we start and then I'll give you a more extended definition in just a few moments. Spiritual gifts are about divine enablement. They're about the presence of the Spirit of God in His church and His effect and working and power unleashed in the context of the church. They are vitally important to effective ministry in the body of Christ. I believe it is for that reason that if there's one area that Satan has sought to mess with in the church, it happens to be the topic of spiritual gifts. Because spiritual gifts are the means by which God blesses individual believers so that they can be effective in building up the community, the body of Christ that he is building and that he loves. And so in many ways, when I when I think about the work of the Spirit of God, and, and forgive me if this is, is is a little bit off, but... This is how I sense most people respond when you have a discussion about the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is, in the church, kind of like the weird uncle. Uh, He's the guy that nobody really talks about. Because Satan has effectively disrupted our understanding of spiritual gifts based on abuses that are often present when they are being exercised in church history. And so the church has gotten a little bit funny about spiritual gifts. But the sad thing about that is when we get funny about spiritual gifts or when we avoid the topic of spiritual gifts, we are really avoiding the power base of the church. Because the Spirit of God has come to indwell believers to make them effective in two areas primarily based on First Peter 4.10. In serving one another and in speaking to each other. Because you can kind of break spiritual gifts down into serving gifts and speaking gifts. They kind of fall into two nice categories. But Satan has kind of messed with the issue of spiritual gifts. And the result is that I believe the church becomes weak and anemic because we spend little time talking about the importance. I believe that the confusion about spiritual gifts is sponsored primarily by Satan in an attempt to disrupt this very vital area. Now, one of the questions that may come to mind this morning is this: Has Paul talked about the work and ministry of the Spirit prior to this portion of Scripture in First Corinthians? And I think the answer is that on a number of occasions he has addressed the issue of of the Spirit. I want you to turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter three, real quickly. You just turn back a few pages. First Corinthians chapter three, we will find a, an initial discussion about the Spirit. Paul speaking to the church says, Do you not know that you yourselves are the temple of God and that God's Spirit lives in you? Then you go to 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Okay, now, I want you to pick up something out of that passage. There's the work of the Spirit indwelling, Father sending the Spirit, Son purchasing our redemption and forgiveness. Okay, so there's a hint or indication of Trinity there. Okay, and we're going to come back. What All I want you to see is that as you work through the book of Corinthians, the work of the Spirit has been central, but there is a misuse of gifts in the church in Corinth that the Apostle Paul wants to address. Okay, and so that's why he's come to this topic. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 7, just uh, turn there real quick. Verse 1 of chapter 7, what you'll find is that the church in Corinth has written a letter to Paul that contains a number of issues that they need help with from his apostolic authority. Okay, a number of issues that they need help with from apostolic authority. So verse 1 of chapter 7 says, Now about the matters that you wrote, to me, concerning. Okay? So there are questions that the church in Corinth has about marriage. What do we do about meat that's been offered to idols? Uh, What do we do about the Lord's table? We're having problems with that. And there were a number of division issues. So they've written to Paul and said, Paul, these are problems that we have in the house of God, in the church that he loves. And so Paul has been picking up these one issue at a time and beginning to deal with them from the perspective of God's will and design. Verse 1 of chapter 12, now about spiritual gifts. So the stated topic is things that relate to or come from the indwelling spirit. Okay, now, Paul's stated purpose and goal is found in the second half of verse 1. In relationship to spiritual gifts, brothers, that is the church at large, I do not want you to be ignorant. Okay, I don't want you to be, and, and the word is agnon, We get our word agnostic from that word. Okay, he's saying, I don't want you to be ambivalent about the work of the Spirit. Why? Because the work of the Spirit in the life of believers is vital and critical to effective church life and to effective service and to an effective outreach to the world around us because he, Acts 1-8, is given as the power by which we become witnesses to the watching world around us. So, Paul's saying this... Agnosticism about the Spirit is intolerable, okay? Because the tendency is this: since there is confusion about the topic, we tend to move away from it. Okay, what the Apostle Paul is saying: let's not move away from the topic of the indwelling Spirit of God in the church. Let's address the topic based on biblical truth. So his purpose is to enlighten them, to shine light of correction. an abused and confused area in the church. And if you wonder if the issue is confused, look over at chapter 14 and verse 12. Chapter 14 and verse 12. Just to get a hint that there is some kind of an issue with spiritual gifts. He says, so it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church, which implies that the opposite was the case. People were embracing and pursuing gifts for self-promotion or self-aggrandizement. And Paul's going to pull them back from a self-centered approach to spiritual gifts to a church-centered approach to spiritual gifts. Because what God is interested in is building His church because it is the means by which He sustains believers and reaches the world. Okay, so when, when that is said, is it any wonder that when Satan seeks to torpedo the church, he torpedoes it at its powerhouse? Where it finds its strength and creates confusion and disillusionment and fear. And the church becomes weak. So as we move into this text, I think it's important to see the stated topic, the stated purpose to bring clarity in a confusing area. And then Paul's stated conviction in verses 2 and 3. Okay, What is it that Paul moves into this discussion with as a a foundational conviction? What is the baseline? For believers? What is the fundamental truth that binds us together? Paul in verse 2 says this, you know that when you were pagans, somehow you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Okay? Prior to coming to Christ, you were guided, influenced, and the words actually lead to a stronger connotation, you were captivated by, you were caught by, you were ensnared by. That is what Satan does grabs people and draws them off to things that cannot give benefit in life. And when he talks about the idols, what does he call them? He calls them mute idols, meaning you can cry out to them as much as you want and you will never get a response. God's work in our lives is the opposite of that. Okay, so the audience that he's writing to is then described in verse 3. He says, Therefore I tell you, no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God, says Jesus be cursed, or literally anathema. Okay, no one speaking by the Spirit says Jesus is anathema. And on the counter side of that coin, no one can say, and this is, I think, please understand this, it's possible to say words, but no one can say and truly mean, Jesus is Lord of my life, apart from the Spirit of God. Okay, now, what is he saying? If someone is in any way degrading the work of Jesus Christ, the person of Christ, is in any way saying his is anathema, they do not have the Spirit of God. And everyone who is in a life-transforming, genuine way saying, Jesus is Lord of my life. Paul says this, that confession, that conviction that I want Christ to be not only my creator and my Savior, but Lord of my life, that kind of deep-seated conviction is being born by the spirit of God. Now, real quickly turn back to Romans chapter 8. Or actually, let me let me just read this for you. You don't have to turn back. Romans chapter 8 and verses 8 through 9. Paul says those who are controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, meaning believers in the church in Rome, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to Christ. Okay, meaning the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God is evidence of conversion, and that indwelling Spirit will always express himself in the life of the church, in the true church, by saying that Jesus Christ is Lord. And anyone that attempts to diminish or take away from the personal work of Christ does not have the Spirit of God. Does that make sense? So whatever is coming from the Spirit of God will always result in an exaltation of Christ and in a submission to Christ. When he is clearly proclaimed in a passionate and truthful, sincere way, it is a result of the work of the Spirit of God in an individual's life. So Paul's stated conviction is this. Those without the Spirit... Deny and belittle Jesus. But those with the Spirit will always exalt Christ. And this becomes the acid test. This is the acid test for true belief. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 17. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter says, You're the Christ. You are the long-awaited, anointed Messiah who one day will die for our sin. Now, that last part Peter doesn't yet understand. He hasn't fully incorporated the full teaching of Jesus into his theology yet. But he knows that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah from the Old Testament Scriptures. That when he came, something was different and unique about him. And Jesus looks at Peter and here's what he says. Peter, flesh and blood, human will, intellect, understanding did not make this known to you. But my Father in heaven did. Now, say Satan, why do you go to that text? Because what that text is saying is this. The Spirit of God reveals the true nature of Christ and causes indwelt believers to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Jesus can say that the Father is the one in the heart of Peter saying, Jesus is Lord. So what does it start to do? It starts to draw this Trinitarian perspective. The Father and the Spirit proclaiming the deity of the Son. Okay, and that there's this, what, what C.S. Lewis called this dance within the Trinity, whereby they affirm each other in ministry and in personhood, and exalt in and delight in and enjoy each other. Folks, I believe the church should exalt and exalt in the work of the Spirit of God. And that when we allow satan to steal the powerhouse of the church to torpedo the main engine room of the church we are making a serious mistake now we know that he will come and attack what god is seeking to do but we the church must cling to what god is doing in our lives and in his church by the spirit because in our flesh dwells no good thing jesus said to his disciples in john 15 apart from me you can do what nothing so may god bring us to a place And our Christian walk and experience. Will we say to God on a regular basis? God, this life you've called me to live this proclamation of Jesus as Lord. I can't do it on my own. I can't really say that and mean it. Unless it is compelled from within to the outside by the Spirit. Because then it comes with a conviction. It becomes something that we must share. So the more that the Spirit of God begins to fill and live in our hearts. What are we going to do? We are going to become people that boldly say Jesus is Lord. And here's my conviction. As we uncover and recover an understanding and implementation of the work of the Spirit of God in our lives, God will change the church. And when God changes the church, the church will begin to have a more effective outreach in the sphere of influence that God has called her to exist, meaning a local church like the chapel at Warren Valley. As we resist the fears and confusions about the Spirit of God and begin to uncover biblical truth about the Spirit of God, we're going to sense a new power in our lives. We're going to sense a new effectiveness by the Spirit. Folks, it's what God so desperately wants. And it's what Paul is writing here as his stated topic, his stated concern to get rid of the darkness about the work of the Spirit of God. And his purpose is to bring clarity so that we understand that the Spirit of God has come to the church with a very important, God-exalting purpose. By His Spirit, God opens hearts to the truth of Jesus. I want you to think back to when you came to know Christ. And when God, by His Spirit, started to bring you a conviction about your sin, and a conviction about the crosswork of Christ as the payment for your sin, and He drew you across the line to a point where you could say from the sincerity of your heart, Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. Because Paul's saying for everyone who can think back and remember, life before Christ and now this life in Christ, for every one of them, God has good news for you that will help you to live this life, this difficult life that Paul calls a battle in the power of the Spirit of God, effectively, in a way that draws on the unity and design of diversity within the body of Christ, so that we can be the church for the glory of God. And folks, let's just all admit this up front. I can't do that. I can't do that. Sometimes I don't want to do that. It's only when the Spirit of God begins to work and convince about the preciousness of the church to the cause of Christ that my heart begins to break and melt and yield and say, yeah, with all of those people in the church, God wants me to work for His glory. He's building His church and He wants us to have a privilege that is being part of this that God is building. The body of Christ. How does he do this? And this, just three simple thoughts I want to lay before you this morning. How does God build the church? How does he uh, make it powerful after liberating us from our sin? and Drawing us into this new relationship. God sends his spirit inside of every Christian and indwells them and empowers them to make an effective contribution to what God is seeking to do on planet earth through his church. How does he do it? Verses 4 through 6, let's look through them together. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of workings, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now, two words should stand out in that text to you this morning. Anybody want to take a shot at one of them? Say it out loud. don't be afraid. Okay, gifts is one. What, what word appears three times? Different and same. Okay, so what is that? There is, same is unity, and different is diversity. Okay? So the first word that I'd like us to look at is this concept of diversity within the body of Christ that is put there by God. Now, we know that there are, is, there, there are diversities in terms of gender, male and female. Okay, we know that there's diversities in terms of intellect. Some people are incredibly bright, and then there's people like me. Okay? Uh, there are people that God has blessed with an incredible capacity financially, and there are others who, who function at a, at, a, at a different level than them. That's the, the nature and makeup of the church. There's all kinds of variety within the body of Christ. And when I look at this passage of Scripture, I notice something else. God has not designed the church for uniformity. He doesn't want us all to look the same. He's designed the church for diversity. And we have to start to say, well, why would God do that? Okay? Because what you find is that there are different kinds of gifts, different kinds of service, different kinds of workings. Three categories that I think all lean towards the same idea okay? What, what is Paul doing here? I believe Paul is making a Trinitarian statement. The Godhead is effectively working in the church. And it's fascinating. If you go back to John, let, let me just uh, uh, express this for you. If you go back to John 14, Jesus says about the Spirit, he says, you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. You go down to the next verse. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. So you find this interplay in the church of the presence of Father, Son, and Spirit. And they're all working together in various aspects of the church. And so Paul, when he talks about this picture of diversity, also wants us to understand that within it, it is being worked out by God through the Godhead. Okay? All effectively working and strengthening and structuring the body of Christ what are spiritual gifts because verse 4 begins with this word there are different kinds of gifts now at, at, let me i'll just give you this insight from the original language okay and see if this helps a little bit when he says in verse 1 now about spiritual gifts the word is numa tas things of the spirit the word the pneuma meaning spirit okay pneumatics air air driven tools all the men will understand that okay so the pneuma pneumatics is things of the spirit okay when you get to verse 4 he uses the word that we're more familiar with in contemporary terminology the word charismata we get our word charismatic from that say pastor Tim what does that mean what it means is every local church is charismatic by definition. That is, we are indwelt with and filled by the things of the Spirit to do the work of God. Now, what you'll see in all three of these verses, verse 4, 5, and 6, there's a diversity of gifts. Gifts are divine enablements. And let me just give you this definition of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, as defined, I think, in this text and moving on through chapter 14 spiritual gifts, are the full range of supernatural or divine enablements that God gives by the Spirit. Okay, they're the full range of divine or supernatural enablements that God gives to the church by or through the instrument of the Spirit. What's fascinating is this. You're going to find that um, 1 Peter 4.10 says that God gives gifts to the church through the Spirit. And yet here he says that God gives gifts through the church to the church through Jesus and that Father himself is giving gifts to the church. Okay, now it can sound confusing. What is it? It's God working on behalf of the church to enable her to accomplish her God-given goals and purposes. Okay, together within the Godhead, they work towards this beautiful goal of establishing a diverse church that works together for the glory and honor of God. The idea of gifts, services, and workings, those three words. One writer suggests this. He says it is a broad range of words to indicate the full range of spiritual gifts in the church. And there is no attempt on the part of Paul here to, in any way, elevate one gift above another. Paul, you know, in the contemporary church, we tend to see distinctions in gifts. Paul doesn't see the distinctions. The terminology that he uses tends to flatten out this idea of which gift is more valuable. Paul's saying that's rubbish. That discussion is rubbish. Each gift that God gives to the church is vital and important, whether it's visible or hidden, whether it's seen by many or seen by none. Every gift that God gives to the church, every individual that God gives, and I believe he gives every individual based on this text, every individual in the body of Christ makes a vital contribution to our success. And when I say success, I mean this. I mean living in a way that glorifies Christ and displays him beautifully and gloriously to the world around us. In other words, it's not about us. It's about how do we become effective instruments as a church, as churches in the hand of God. There is diversity, but there is a common source. Same spirit, same Lord, same God. God, therefore, is the source of all of these enablements. One writer has said concerning the diversity of the church, he said this. He said, we are much more like an orchestra than we are like an army. What does he mean? He means that, that when the army lines up, everybody's in uniform, right? And the emphasis tends to be on uniformity. Everybody complies with certain standards and characteristics, and that's all good and fine for an army. But when God brings together the church, there is such a degree of diversity. of dist- And the idea of that word diverse is distributions, allotments, proportions, all given to individual believers in different ways some with more gifts some with less gifts but there are these distributions and allotments that make up the church and when you think of the church as an orchestra what what happens in an orchestra you have this diversity of instruments that when they all come in together we have something that we call musically harmony or it's called a symphony well what's a symphony okay i'll tell you right up front i don't love symphony music unless it's really loud and strong and then i i love it okay when that's done with excellence i i, I thrive on that. i love that kind of trans-siberian kind of stuff okay that's like that's orchestra okay what when when all those instruments join together what is it it's symphony sounds together that's what the church is the church is like an orchestra if you switch to another analogy if you think of the church as a football team, okay, and everybody on the football team wants to be a quarterback, what kind of a team do you have? I thought about this this, this this morning, Okay, I thought about how dangerous this could be to say something like this. In athletic teams, diversity leads to success. A number of gifted individuals who are passionate about reaching a goal tend to be more successful than others. I believe, as someone from Pennsylvania, that that is why the Philadelphia Phillies last year won the World Series. And I believe it's why the Yankees didn't. The Yankees have a lot of talent. But there's something in chemistry. John Tadona might disagree with me on this, but there's something apparently in chemistry, in power, in unity, that's missing. There's too much uniformity, not enough diversity. So what makes the church effective is when we realize that God has designed the church in an incredibly diverse way with allotments and and distributions. And when they work together, something glorious begins to emerge. So here's the question I ask you this morning. Do we, and maybe you want to personalize this and say, do I value the diversity of our church Like God does. Okay, do I I value the diversity of our church? The unique ways in which God has made people. Some ways that God makes people, sometimes we look at them and say, well, that's kind of irritating. Okay, that kind of attention to detail, I find that kind of irritating. But guess what? That attention to detail becomes incredibly valuable and necessary for an organism, an organization to function effectively, doesn't it? So God has... Brought together the church, a lot of diversity. Do, do I appreciate the diversity of the church? Do you? Do you ever just look around or think about your church as a whole and begin to value the unique contributions that individual parts make and say, God, thank you for this person has this gift. Thank, thank God for the people to come up and lead us in worship on Sunday morning who have different kinds of gifts that God in His wisdom and grace has allotted to them. The second picture that emerges in verse 7 is the picture of unity. I think it's hinted at very clearly in 4 through 6, the same, the same, the same. But in verse 7, He says this. Now to each one, the, and, and I don't know what word you have in your translation, but to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Manifestation literally means the showing or evidencing of the Spirit is given to who? What's the text say? To the church, but what's the word to To each one. Okay? So there's diversity, and then there's this picture of unity that begins to emerge, which is very powerful, sweet, and beautiful. To each one is given a manifestation. Folks, I want you to think about this. To every Christian is giving a, is given a showing, a manifesting of the Spirit of God. D.A. Carson has written a book on these three chapters. He calls it this, showing the Spirit. Because the Spirit comes to display Christ to the world. And when we as a church use our God-given capacities to make a difference in the lives of each other and in the lives of those around us, what are we doing? We're taking God-given capacities or... God, I, 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 I was thinking of this, it, sometimes it seems that God takes natural talents and turbocharges them, maximizes effectiveness for his glory. So someone may have been an instrumentalist, my guess is that Jillian Sosnovic would have been a piano player in Christ or outside of Christ, but God takes that gift and comes on that gift and enables worship to emerge, whereas apart from Christ, it's music but the Spirit of God comes on gifts and makes them effective. Okay? Someone who may have a gift of teaching uh, can, in teaching the Word of God, experience a fresh anointing from the Spirit of God that makes the teaching beneficial for spiritual life. And service. Some people, they're natural servers. God takes that service when it's yielded to Him and brought under the power of the Spirit of God to accomplish amazing things. Okay, so every Christian... And young people, I hope you. I thought of I thought of teenagers this morning as I was thinking through this passage again. To everyone, that God has given a showing, a manifesting, a displaying of the Spirit. Would you let that settle on your heart this morning, and realize that God, for every Christian, has put on you a capacity to reveal Him to the world around you. You don't just go to work. You don't just go to school. You go with God. And you display Him as you walk in the Spirit. That takes life to a whole different level. It changes our relationships. It it changes work relationships. It just changes everything. Nothing a Christian does is mundane, purely mundane. Because everywhere we go, the Spirit of God who has been given to us and who gifts us, Goes with us. You don't just have a job if you know Christ. You're not just a mom if you know Christ. You're not just a student in high school or college if you know Christ. You are the means by which God has sovereignly designed and chosen to manifest Himself to the world. Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said, I'm going to come to you. How does He come to us? He comes through the Spirit. So when I manifest, when I live my life, I am manifesting to the world around me. God's presence. That is indeed an overwhelming reality that we as Christians need, I think, to contemplate. Two thoughts emerge out of this statement, that to each one He's given gifts. Each believer is given some capacity or ability by the Spirit. Folks, I, I know this from my experience in talking with people in our church. There are often people who look at visible gifts and think that their invisible or low-profile gift lacks importance. Nothing could be further from the truth. There are hundreds of little things that take place for this church to operate. There are numerous things that happen on Sunday morning in order for this church to operate effectively. And God gives to every believer capacities to serve and to make effective the work of the body of Christ. Why does He do it? To manifest Himself. He doesn't do it so that you can feel better. Okay? Please understand this. He doesn't give them so that I can feel important. He gives them so I can have the privilege of serving Him in His church. And when He is... Exalted and glorified. What happens to his children? They love that. They enjoy that. They find delight in that. So that the exercise and manifesting of the work of God in our lives, it's for his glory. Let that be what drives us and motivates us. That when we take God-given capacities and exercise them fervently for his glory, what's happening? We are showing the Spirit to the world around us. And we live in a world that so desperately needs to see and hear of His presence. So every believer has a capacity and ability from God. He enables each of us to make a positive difference and to contribute to life in the body of Christ. And every ability is given for mutual benefit. Every influence prompting and work of the Spirit of God in your life is given for the mutual benefit of the church at large. So in verse 7 he says, now to each one is given a showing of the Spirit for the common good. That is for the broad benefit of the body of Christ. If God in your personal devotions challenges you about personal holiness, I'm going to tell you something. He does not want you to keep that conviction to yourself. What is he doing? He's changing you. So that you can be a more effective husband. So that you can be a more effective worker. So that in the realm and context of the body of Christ, you can be a more effective servant. He is challenging you and changing you and shaping you and showing you truth so that he can mold you into an instrument that will be to greater benefit to the church. Because when the church is stronger and more effective, God is glorified. Why? Because he's building his church. Would you let the passion of ministry, of the work of the Spirit, settle on your heart? Realize that He's interested in diversity. Yes, He gives a variety of gifts, but His goal is unity. He wants us to work together, to stand up together, to serve together, to worship together in a way that truly will exalt and honor and glorify the name. And as I say that, I want to just make this very clear. There are no unessential parts of the body of Christ. None. None. Every Christian has a God-designed place. Some writers call it their shape. The way that God made them and the way that God gifts them and gives them passions so that they can make a difference in the context of their church life. Now, there's a warning that emerges in this text very subtly. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 7, Paul can say to the church in Corinth, you do not lack any spiritual gifts. Which is a fascinating statement. Every manifestation of the Spirit of God that was needed in Corinth for effective service, unity, and building up of the body of Christ was present. But what kind of church was Corinth? Go back to chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. What does Paul say? (laughs) Seven, you're not liking any of the spiritual gifts, but I hear from the house of Chloe that there are divisions among you. Folks, what does that mean? It means I can have a God-given capacity to show the Spirit and still be divisive in my heart. That's scary. That's scary. I, in the exercise of my gifts, we, in the exercise of our spiritual gifts, must be devoted to holiness and to a desire to honor God and to put self to death, to crucify ourselves so that the indwelling Spirit of God can be manifest so that we get out of the way So that we are peeled back and the work of the Spirit of God can be displayed to the world around us. Isn't that not wonderful? He wants to manifest himself through our individual lives and through the life of our church. That should change how we come to church. It should change how we view each other. And it should produce not only humility that we saw under diversity or or, or appreciation that we saw under diversity. Unity should promote humility in our hearts. Here's the way that you could say it. And I, I can just look at you this morning and say this. I need you. I need you. Paul is expressing to us the heart of God. You know what God wants? He wants us to realize that we are giving gifts for the common good. I do not exist for myself. I live in a very individualistic culture which can can erode away at my understanding of the body of Christ. It's easy to see ourselves as isolated individuals or families that have their purpose. But what we have as the church is God's purpose. He empowers us. He fills us. It should produce humility so that we can say to each other, I not only need your input, but I value your input. And when I come with that kind of an attitude to the body of Christ, to my brothers in Christ, to my friends in Christ, I will relate in humility because I will be confessing, you know what, I need you. I need your strength. I need your support. I need your help. I need your insight into my life. I need that full display of the gifts of the Spirit in my life so that I can be effective as a pastor to you. Folks, I I am confident of something. I can't be effective alone. I am utterly convinced of that. But I believe that together we can be effective for the glory of God. Last thought I want to look at just real quick, and I'm not going to go into any detail here. Verses 8 through verse 10 talk about distributions of various kinds of gifts. And we'll get into some of that in in, in a couple of weeks. For right now, I just want you to realize that there is this, to each one, is given, which is just a, a, a further explanation of verse 7. To each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given, verse 8, to each one there is given by the Spirit. By the same Spirit, same Spirit, and one Spirit. Those words emerge as you work through verse 9. And then he begins to lift very, very specific and a diverse array of spiritual gifts. Verse 11 then, following that listing of gifts, he says, all these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he gives them to each one just as he determines. Now, I'll make a quick observation for you in relationship to the list that is given here and the other four lists that are given, list of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. All right, now understand this. None of the gifts are the same. None of the list of gifts are the same. Okay, which should start to tell us something. I believe there is something within the realm of spiritual gifts that is fluid and effective. That God is giving gifts, manifestations of His Spirit to the church for unique purposes in unique settings. Different people who have different kinds of abilities and effects when they yield themselves to the Spirit of God. So that the church is built up. That's the end goal. A church built up strong for the glory of God. So, in the list, none of them are the same. If you put all the lists together, you're going to come up with 21 or 20 or 21 different spiritual gifts that are listed in the New Testament. I believe that is a starting point for spiritual gifts. I don't believe that that each believer is given just one gift. Okay, because the indication of varieties is allotments or distributions that he's giving different packages to people so that they can be effective in different contexts for the glory of God. So you should be looking into your heart and asking, what are the gifts that God has given me? Some of the gifts seem spectacular from a human perspective, some very ordinary. Paul makes no such distinction in relationship to spiritual gifts. Paul assumes that all of the gifts are essential. Whether we highly value them or are amazed by them or not. Paul doesn't want us according to individuals, higher degrees of respect because of the spiritual gift they have. It came from God and its purpose is to unite and build the body of Christ. The last thought, number three, is design. The distribution of gifts in the church is the sovereign work of God. The distribution is a matter of His wise plan to promote unity in His family. The presence and effect of spiritual gifts makes the church unique in our world in power and in purpose. And I believe, therefore, the church as gifted by God should be a priority for every Christian. You see, I think what God is saying is this. I've gifted the church so that together you can succeed, so that you can mutually bless and encourage each other. But I say to young people, when you go to college, find a local church. You know why? Not so that there's rigid controls on your life, but so that you can experience the benefits of the body of Christ that God puts you in by His Spirit. And he's gifted the church not so that you can live independent of it, but so that you will be committed to a mutual relationship of benefit and service. He doesn't want us to go off for four years to college and not be involved in the church. There's a, here's what we end up with we end up with this, uh, 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 I don't want to say, a pious spirituality that what I'm saying, if I don't participate in the church, is I don't need the church. God says, I need it. And so I just want to encourage you as a church family, value what God values. Make the church a priority in your life because it is a priority in God's plan to affect our world. And it is a priority in God's plan to affect each other by the Spirit. He wants to show the Spirit in our lives. Now what that means as we come to our conclusion and look at the Lord's table this morning is this. I believe it means that we need to be very careful about hiding sin in our lives I said Tim how do you make that jump because of two commands in scripture 1 Thessalonians 5 says don't quench the spirit and Ephesians 4 says don't grieve the spirit of God and folks I, I can tell you this if you go examine the text very simply what it means is this don't hide sin in your life. Don't harbor better attitudes like the church in Corinth did. That's what Paul's writing that saying. You guys got to stop this because you're the church. You're the unique plan and purpose of God to build people up and to show God to the world. This morning as we come to the conclusion of our service, and we're going to share the Lord's table together. What this is about is remembering that the blood of Christ was shed. To purchase us from our sin. What kind of people? Oh, 1 Corinthians 1. Not many mighty. Not many strong. Not many noble. Why? God doesn't need that stuff. He uses it sometimes, but he doesn't need it. Why? Because when you come to Christ from a weak background, not noble, not strong, not wealthy, not extremely wise, guess what God does? God imparts the gifts of his spirit to you to make you effective in the church. And the thing that hinders the effectiveness of spiritual gifts is sin in our hearts. when we come to the Lord's table, we're forced to do something in our church on a monthly basis. Look at the symbol of the broken body of Christ. Look at the symbol of the shed blood of Christ. I mean, really, look at it. With this confession in your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And then ask yourself this question. Can I harbor sin in my heart that inhibits the work of the Spirit of God in my life when I look at the cross and say, Jesus is Lord. And so Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 11. We looked at this a few weeks ago. He says, let each one examine themselves. Folks, all I can ask you to do this morning is look into your heart and say, God, am I valuing the church like you do? Or is there a tendency towards independence? A tendency towards thinking, I don't really need God's plan. I don't need God's people maybe it's pride i don't know what it is maybe it's pride maybe there's a bitterness that is or a resentment that is built up in your heart towards the church or towards brothers and sisters in christ god wants to do damage to that this morning by the work of repentance and forgiveness he wants to show it to you to the point that it hurts and one professor i had said this he said first god's word is going to sting and then it will sing first it will wound and then it will heal and folks, here's what maybe God needs to do in our hearts this morning. Maybe God needs to wound you in your perspective of the church. He needs to prick your conscience, prick your heart by the work of the Spirit of God. So that when we pray, we go to Him and say, God, I haven't loved your church. Hasn't been it's your priority, has not been mine. And sometimes we just need to be really honest with God. And say, God, convict me. Show me by your Spirit how I need to change so that I can then. Show your spirit to the world around me. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?